You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean Bradford and not Rick, because Rick actually said he is hair is on fire. The limited amount of hair he has on top of his head is currently on fire because he has so much work to do before the end of the month. So he asked us if we'd take this podcast. In Rick's place, actually, we have an unsung hero of crowdfunding nerds, one of our recent full-time hires, Jacob Cecil. Welcome to the show, Jacob. Hey, thanks for having me. On this podcast, what we wanted to talk about really were two things. We wanted to kind of talk about hiring in general, you know, because a lot of, you know, really everybody that listens to this podcast owns a business um, or, or, you know, strives to own a business. And, you know, because you're, if you're a publisher of a, of a game or a product or whatever it is, you know, when you're working in a business and you need help, you hire contractors or employees or whatever it is, this is like really our, the focus of the episode is kind of how we would recommend to treat them just based on a core case study. And then my personal experience as a, as a, a owner of multiple businesses. And so, you know, but in addition to that, we want to talk to Jacob and learn a little bit about him and where he comes from and what his experience has been so far. So it's kind of a, a two-parter that we're going to try to get through in a single podcast episode and we'll see how it goes. Maybe we'll dive deeper into one of these topics if, um, I mean, if we have a lot to say. So. so Jacob, how did you and Andrew first connect? That would probably be an interesting place to start. Sure. Yeah, I connected with Andrew initially. Through ads for deliverance uh, on Facebook, it was something that I had I had been browsing and and saw ads for his game and uh, was immediately kind of excited about it and thought it looked like something that was good and especially for a Christian game that it looked like it didn't suck. It had great art. Attract the return on investment of that. So I had, I, had, I had clicked on the ad and really quickly jumped into the, the Facebook group and poked around to kind of get a feel for what was going on and, and what was getting made. And through that, had kind of just started messaging Andrew and asking him questions uh, about the game. I think my initial first contact, I'd reached out to him because Andrew had a deliverance t-shirt on. And people had been commented asking if it was ever something that he would reproduce. And at the time, I was working as an artist for a screen printing company making T-shirts. Uh, and I had reached out to Andrew uh, to offer setting something up to print shirts for him uh, in bulk quantity to be able to to ship out if that was something that people were interested in. This was back in, like I want to say, 2019 or yeah, I mean, it was at least 2019. I guess it's it's possible it was maybe a little before then. It may have yeah, been 2018. Like 2018. Yeah, I want to say it was probably about 2018 because I think it's been about five years or close to it. I I should say, yeah, it was it was probably late 2018, early 2019. So you were a central piece of the. You know how we always say, don't put T-shirts and tchotchkes in your Kickstarter, and and I did, and I sold like a thousand shirts um, to my Deliverance fans. Well, the the first step of that whole process was me kind of, uh, you know, well, connecting with Jacob, realizing, wow, I now have a connection that can help me through t-shirts. All I have to do is figure out how to get them to people. And this is back in 2018, where we had a thousand or so, maybe people on our email list and people were very engaged about deliverance. It was a very long time until, I mean, we went to Kickstarter finally and 2020. So uh, this was two years before our Kickstarter. People really wanted the shirt. And so I I conducted a pre-order. I set up our website to with a, a, a program called Gravity Forms, or it's a plugin for WordPress called Gravity Forms, where you could, it was like, in essence, just a really detailed contact form where you could um, uh, ask people what shirt they wanted and what size, and you could even charge the money for the, you know, for you know, in the form as well. So I kind of got a list of, you know, I said, all right, do you guys want shirts? And everybody was like, yes, let's do it. And I ended up selling like over a hundred shirts and 
uh, like pre- in pre-orders to my fan, my community, which is crazy for a game that wasn't even out yet, but people really wanted them and you guys produced them. So that was, that was really cool. And we weren't even thinking about like working together in, in a, in, I mean, this was before I had hired anybody for crowdfunding nerds. And in fact, it was before I even did a single Kickstarter project. So that was, that was, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was shortly after that, then I just started, I did the t-shirts and then I think to kind of stay, (laughs) to stay relevant and involved, uh, my background is in visual arts. And so I had started doing funny chibi versions of his angel characters, just more or less to be a conversation starter and keep things going in the Facebook group. Uh, And I think that was kind of one of those things that kind of kept the, the ball rolling with us kind of talking and communicating with each other. Yeah, it was super fun. Just, just, it tickled me pink to see somebody that actually did a, like an art of my, you know, or that, that did fan art in, in essence. And um, it was cool, but it also was like really super awesome because it, it, it actually caused engagement in the group and made other people really excited. And I even pitched you an idea. I think you made uh, one of our angels, Sardius has this halo of, of gems and you made him like pull, it was like he pulled one of the gems. It was an apple and he took a bite of the yeah. apple or something. Yeah. my I've got three kids and my, my youngest is three and they would see the picture of the deliverance angels. I had it as a wallpaper on my uh, desktop and my three-year-old was convinced that Sardius's halo was made out of fruit. Uh, and he kept asking why there were like blueberries and stuff on Sardius's crown. So I, uh, yeah, I'd kind of talked to Andrew about it and I did a little sketch where Sardius's halo was made up of like apples and pears and strawberries (laughs) and stuff like that. So, uh, the inevitable, I was, I was kind of hoping that that would be the alternate art for the Sardius card on, uh, the deliverance game would be the fruit crown. (laughs) But yeah, so I, <laughs> it's pretty cool. So now let's kind of fast forward because, it, well, we, you did help us again with our official print run of t-shirts we ordered about, I mean, I want to say it's like 900 that we, that we ordered or over 900 from the company, which is called Hands On Originals based in Kentucky. Really great company for screen printing and that kind of thing. They didn't even pay me to say that, but uh, I think they were a great <laughs> company and uh, you work for them as like an artist and you helped you actually were the one that designed the deliverance shirts. So when our Kickstarter campaign was live, you designed the shirts and, and when, but when did we get into the conversation of maybe working together? How did that, how do you remember? I think it was kind of a gradual process. So I had done, I'd helped out with the initial print run of t-shirts and we had kind of stayed in touch. I started making fan art and then slowly I, it started trickling in that you had messaged me about freelancing some graphic work for crowdfunding nerds. Uh, some of that was creating a couple of visual assets um, for the website. And then it turned into doing the branding for crowdfunding nerds. And so I had done the initial branding for crowdfunding nerds and it was sort of like this little trickle of a few different freelance graphic pieces uh, that I, that was, I was asked to do that kind of extended over doing the logo for Lowen games uh, to get ready for the deliverance launch. And I think from that point, we kind of just kept the conversation going. I, I know we had had conversations at the time, if there was ever a need, for someone to handle more graphic assets or things of that nature within crowdfunding nerds, that it's something I would be interested in. Uh, and I think that conversation kind of sort of just developed organically until we started working together on a more permanent basis. I guess it would have been February of last year. Yeah. Maybe we can pause right here and kind of start dipping into the hiring thing because what I find is that, you know, now we're a full time staff of six. And everybody that has been hired for crowdfunding nerds, it seems was involved because of uh, deliverance in one way or another. I never have posted a job on, you know, Indeed or monster.com or where, you know, wherever jobs get posted, nothing on LinkedIn. I just, you know, we've had needs and I've, I've always had somebody that I envisioned like this person, let's 
continue to craft the company around this person, not necessarily, I need someone that can run ads for me. Um, I've never hired for, for like, I mean, it, well, I don't want to say I've never hired, but I have rarely hired for a specific skill set that somebody possesses. Because what I find is, you know, just as the, the doer originally of Next Level Web, all the things, I w- preferred to hire based on what someone else was good at. I would, you know, the, I, they would want, you know, people that wanted to do the web design, people that wanted to do email marketing, people that wanted to, you know, look at spreadsheets and run ads, like depending on what your type of, like what you really liked to do, I wanted to lean into that so that, you know, what I, what I figure is that somebody that works for me needs to enjoy what they do. And I I don't want to give people things that they absolutely hate doing because you, I mean, you wouldn't stick around forever if you just, you know, ha- had stuff that you just hated doing. So in, in that way, I feel like I, I just found, you know, we had certain needs. It's like, all right, I, you know, I don't know, like for, um, you know, Sean, it's like, I need somebody to help me with this work. Can you come on in and help me? And then eventually it was like, you, you're just super great at with the ads, great with client interaction. You're super great with spreadsheets and data analysis and everything like that. And it's, it's like now you're, you've taken over like pretty much the management of, of the, the ads and just making sure they're all administered and followed up on and that kind of thing. And then for you, Jacob, you had that graphic design experience, that, that visual design, much more than just graphic design. I mean, logos and like t-shirt designs and other things for clients. And we, when we brought you on, it was to do landing pages, right? We needed visual mock-ups for landing pages for our clients and we needed to be able to produce those faster. And so that's, isn't that how you kind of originally, when I'm like, Hey, can you work for us just a few hours a week doing this? For sure. Yeah. That was my initial main job responsibility was handling the, the landing page development and getting those put together in a way that it could easily be handed over for someone to run with the ads. And do you remember when it, or if we had a conversation that was like, Jacob, what do you want to do? Um, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, we did. We had talked about that a couple of times. Um, and I think from the graphic standpoint, that was a, a big part of our initial conversation. And so I was very eager to jump into anything that fit within that scope of work with landing page designs or other ways of assisting with creating assets, but be that for ads or, or the landing page itself. But I did have an interest in wanting to learn the ad and marketing side of things because it, in a way it is sort of a, it's, it's an art form. It's just a, a different art form, learning how to write and craft engaging ad copy uh, is something that does take a bit of artistic flair uh, to really produce something that's exciting and that someone wants to engage with or click on. So that was something that I had an interest in wanting to develop and kind of stretch myself to learn. And so I, I think very close, very soon after I started, I did landing page designs. And then I did start immediately with writing some ad copy for uh, a couple clients that we were producing ads for. You know, when we had that conversation, because this is something like in, in regard to hiring, I have this, my belief, at least it just as a, a business owner and manager of, of others is that we're not here to, we're not, we don't, we're not existing in life to work, but we work because we must in order to make money so that we can live life and do the things that we really love to do. And, you know, as much as it is possible, it's my kind of philosophy to make the work that I do something that I really love to do so that it doesn't really feel like work. And, you know, sometimes it's like, I don't know, like when I'm answering 85 support tickets for deliverance, it feels like work and not fun. You know, I just want to make games and like be a nerd. You know, I, I think there's some tasks that you just can't get away from. In my head, at least, that was like a core piece of the whole puzzle is like, who are you? And what do you do and how will this support you, you know, and, um, you know, the, the autonomous schedule is, you know, and, and, and all of that. Did you get that sense? And was that something you were looking for as well? Or was it just only a big deal in my head? No, I think that was a huge deal for me as a creative individual. Uh, it's was very appealing to be able to have 
some freedom with setting how I work and when I work, as it allows me to kind of engage and work in the hours where I feel like I'm most awake and creative and ready to go, um, while also presenting me with opportunities to to be involved with my with my family. Um, I mentioned before I'm married and I have three kids. Um, so it's nice to be able to to be available and accessible when they need me, uh, especially since they my kids are part of a homeschool co-op. So they're only away for half the day. And in the afternoon, they're at home and learning. And so it's nice to be able to pop over for a quick 10 minutes if I need to and give some some homework advice or help and then jump right back at it. So it was really appealing for me to be able to have some of that creative freedom when it comes to putting my schedule together. And Jacob, yeah. you, you've also run your own businesses, correct? You you ran a, a retail store, a comic book shop. Uh, do you want to maybe talk yes. a little bit about that? And also tell us about your infamous Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, uh, so I, I can't wait to hear this. Just story. a bit of my background. I, my, uh, my degree is in, in studio art and art education, and I spent five years as a high school teacher. And after I left the the teaching world behind, I've been an, I was an avid comic book collector for all of my college years. Uh, and I was still going in and buying books every week while I was while I was teaching. Uh, and it turned into an opportunity where uh, a guy that I knew that used to be a customer at a at a store I went to called me up without me even letting him know I'd quit teaching. He called me up the week after I quit teaching was like, "Hey, do you want to come run this store?" And I was like, "You know what? I just quit teaching. <laughs> I'm helping my wife shoot weddings, but that would be great." So, <laughs> I uh I took a job running a uh comic book store and very quickly got the board game itch and they didn't really have much of a board game selection beyond a bunch of different copies of Munchkin and Catan. And so I kind of took over that as my baby with running that store was running their board game collection and kind of curating that and more or less giving myself the label of like a board game pusher. Mm -hmm. So you can come to me to get your fix and I'll, I'll hook you up with something and make you leave for <laughs> spending money on a new game. Uh, but we we ran, we used to run Magic the Gathering and Yu-Gi-Oh tournaments. And I had joked with Sean that there's like a level of hygiene based on, I think, your uh, your nerdy interests sometimes. So it ranged from... Teenagers probably. Middle school, yeah, a lot of middle school kids and high school, high school kids up to just some like grown men that still lived at home. Uh, they really love their Yu-Gi-Oh. I'm not trying to knock Yu-Gi-Oh players, but it was a definite different demographic of people. And it was almost one of those things like I kind of almost visualize like uh, Pigpen from Charlie Brown that always has that perpetual dust cloud around him. Except yeah. with Yu-Gi-Oh players, it was sort of like a stink cloud. Like you almost could see this like haze uh <laughs> coming off of them as they wandered into the store so we had even gotten to the point like the smell was so bad we started putting it posting rules that you had to take a shower before you were able to come in or if we could smell you then you needed to you needed to leave and address it we would like buy sample packs of deodorant and hand out deodorants with people's entry fees. So, wow. I mean, most of it was in good natured fun because we had a bunch of kids and stuff that they they had been in the shop for years. Mm -hmm. So we knew all of these people on a first name basis, but it, it never failed. Someone would walk in and be like, Josh, man, like when is the last time that you bathed? Like, please, man, <laughs> you're, you're sitting back in the tournament area, 30 feet away from the register and I can smell you from here. Oh, <laughs> I would have implemented a rule. Losers get dunked. That's true. <laughs> yeah. The, um, we, we talk about hygiene factors every so often and maybe I should, I always use the example of like going out on a first date, but I feel like there's room here for um, for expansion. Yeah. It, just, it feels like, like literal <laughs> hygiene factors, yes. For sure. I love case studies when just looking at anything. And, and I, I have to admit, I'm a bit of a Vel fanboy. I like their games. And I, I think they're, they're a leader in the games industry in terms of just their output, what they've done in terms of creating Steam, creating 
uh, these really big video game IPs, Half-Life, Portal, Left 4 Dead, so on and so forth. And what's even more interesting is they're still a private company. They're privately owned. They don't have some third party coming in, controlling them and sort of sucking their <laughs> their profits and their life force and, and redirecting in ways which might not be profitable. They're a self-sustained business. So they make a great case study and they have a, a very peculiar work environment. And essentially everyone works as a contractor. They're not, they're officially employed, but everyone in the philosophical way is essentially a contractor. People are brought in and they're everyone's sort of a generalist, but they have a speciality and they kind of change their roles depending on what needs to be done, depending on the projects that are coming up. So there's no sort of hierarchy or oversight. I think this is really key to hiring. You want to hire people in your company who are have this kind of mentality of business owner. Like I know Jacob, you, you've you've run your own businesses, you've run, you've managed stores, so you can bring that competency into crowdfunding nerds. We don't have to hold your hand doing a bunch of stuff. You're able to learn, problem solve, adjust. And that that that's that's really key and core. But one interesting thing about Valve is they have an annual staff vacation. So one way to motivate everyone when Half-Life was being made, because that was such a crunch that Gabe Newell basically said if, if Half-Life becomes the best-selling game of the year, he'll take the entire team, the entire staff on a, on a vacation. So that, I think that kind of stuck in the company. But what it really shows you is that Gabe or Valve hires people that they would like to ha- be around during vacation. I think that's a great insight into that company is that, not only is do they hire people who, with competency, they actually hire people who <laughs> they'd want to be around during a vacation time. They ask three questions when hiring people. I think this is just important for our listeners because you're going to be hiring people, you're going to be hiring contractors, but these are the three questions they ask. Would I want this person to be my boss? Would I learn a significant amount from him or her? What if this person went to work for our competition. So those are the kind of three questions they ask. And I think those are, those are really good questions to ask when, when seeking to hire people. I'll, we'll link this handbook for new employees in the show notes. I think it's well worth reading. There's a lot of information in it, but it, it gives you an insight to a, basically a leader in the games industry. And there's, there's a reason why their output is so high is they have a very unique uh, infrastructure within their company that I think is worth modeling uh, to some degree or even investigating or knowing about. So that, that, that would be a very helpful read for our listeners. There's a lot in there, but I, I think those are some interesting points that I, I noticed when going through it for the first time. Yeah. So talk a little bit about this Valve handbook because, uh, so we'll, we'll have to share in the, in the show notes for sure, but um, talk a little bit about to give our readers a little bit of context of this, you know, what, this thing actually says. Yeah, so I, I came across this document because I was actually looking at Valve's playtesting philosophy because they they playtest sooner rather than later. They're sort of infamous or they're sort of famous for bringing in playtesters right away. So they might uh, design a very basic level and they bring t- playtesters and they just start playtesting straight away and they iterate very quickly. This video that I was describing this, which I could also include in the show notes, they talked about this handbook. It's like, oh, that's an interesting handbook, which is what people receive when they get hired. So uh, another thing about Valve is they have a quite a strenuous hiring process because of their sort of... Their, like a non-hierarchical, it's the horizontal that's hierarchy. It. Yeah. So they have to they have to be very careful who they employ, right? Because they need people who are essentially going to be their own boss. They're going to go and be self-motivated, self-learning, problem solvers. So those are all key traits, which are actually really good traits for homeschoolers, <laughs> Jacob. These are time, I think these are kind of traits that a lot of homeschoolers try to drive into their kids, which is different maybe from the public schooling model. When when I was reading this document, I was thinking, yeah, a lot of a lot of this is a lot of these principles that they're looking for is kind of what homeschoolers try to instill in their kids. So uh, even from like an education perspective, I think it's it's worth reading. But anyway, this is this document is what new employees are handed. So it's kind of like, welcome to the team. This is what we're about. This is what to expect. And this is what's really required of you. So it's in terms, it's, it's a really neat insight. I don't, I don't even know if the document is legal in terms of people reading it, but I don't know, it's, 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 it's been out for so long. It's been out since 2012. I'm sure a lot of this stuff people know already. It looks like some staff maybe leaked it at, at some point, but it's, it, it's, there's nothing sensitive in it. It's just, it's a very good insight into how the company is run and a very valuable insight because it's such a, a robust 
a giant, I suppose, in the games industry. I, I find this to be quite fascinating because, uh, so first of all, this horizontal structure that Valve, you know, works off of, you have to want to be there in order, you know, if you want to work at Valve, it's not a job. It's, it's definitely like we are working together over this, um, like this, these collective goals that the company itself has. And there's this corporate culture. I think that that's something that is of great value, like the culture of a company the other people that work there will help kind of, you know, bathe whoever is the new in that culture of the company. And if the culture is, you know, cutthroat, I step on your head to get ahead and, and, and all of that, that's like, you know, what we understand as corporate America. Uh, that's a very, um, it teaches and trains employees to keep things private, to not innovate or to keep their innovation quiet for a really long time until they're finally ready to show it. You know, and then they get at the last minute their their immediate boss takes what they've done and takes credit for it and and all of that. So it, it really kills innovation and all of this, like that very cutthroat corporate America. Climbing the corporate ladder is, you know, it's a very can be a very toxic environment. And so Valve has really kind of flipped the model on its head where they're like, we want you to be here and produce everything that you can like just to your greatest level. And each person tends to be really good at certain things and love doing things. And they, and Valve through this document, they make it absolutely clear that we're not even going to assign you a project. We are going to tell you what projects exist. And then you find a place that you want to be. And I just am, um, you know, kind of baffled by that. I'm, I'm sure that, so they have like a, you know, their founder, their president and, and CEO guy, and they, um, and he's obviously the, you know, the buck stops there, but um, he's empowered others to hire and fire. He's empowered others to, you know, you're the programmers that work on stuff. You know, you guys are good at steam. So, you know, like keep continue focusing on that and whatever, but um, it's not so much like anybody telling you what to do as much as like saying, this is the work that needs doing. What part would you like to um, to take on. Is that your impression too, Sean? Yeah. Well, when reading this document, you'll see over and over again that they are incredibly customer focused. So all of their decisions are already focused on their customers. How can we best serve our customers? What processes can we establish? What systems do we need to do to better help ourselves, help our customers? So they have these overarching philosophies that they try to implement, which I think that really drives all their decisions. And then because they are engineers, they're software engineers, they've taken a lot of engineering principles and applied them to their business. So like, for example, I'll just quote a section about team responsibility says, so quote, we all engage in analysis, measurement, predictions, and evalu evaluations. So everyone on the team is a data analysis. They're all kind of monitoring, okay, I've tried this and what was the result? What happened? How did this move us closer to our goal of satisfying our customers? So I I think it might sound pretty broad and open, but when you actually have that kind of overarching view in mind and then you're, you have to have data to back it up, then it makes a lot of sense that uh, that probably gives you more direction internally. And the proof is in the pudding, right? Look at what they're producing. So uh, clearly they're doing something right because they do stand out among uh, the the Goliaths of all these different uh, gaming corporations as one that I think is one of the most innovative, uh, certainly. Um, a lot of big corporations have copied them. You know, Battle.net is really just, hey, we want we want our own Steam. <laughs> they've, they've just adopted uh, principles that Steam um, had. And now they're getting into you know, even hardware mm -hmm. creation with their uh, VR stuff and Steam decks and whatnot. So there's a lot of interesting stuff they're, they're producing. I think fundamentally keeping the customer in mind and I really get the sense that they're almost like butlers and their goal is to sort of like be these kind of like highly specialized people that serve their customer, like, like a butler would, you know, it's like they kind of know a lot about their customers and they want to be able to offer the best solutions and services for their customers. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's, it's really curious because they have a, a section in this um, hiring a new employee handbook document that talks about what Valve is not good at. And there are a couple of things that, that are, you know, pretty interesting that Valve is not good at. Uh, one of them is being 
um, helping new people find their way. They're not good at that. They're not good at mentoring people. They're not good at disseminating information internally. It's like, well, that's like kind of a, you know, some big things, but you know, it's, it's, I think there are these pros and cons to the, their organizational structure. And I think that in general, obviously, you know, the proof is in the pudding, like you said, the, the results speak for themselves. But I, I find for myself when I hire, I, I try, I guess I'm, I, maybe I try to be like a little bit of a baby valve. Like that's, that's what I want to be. I want to be a place where each of our team members are that they want to be here and that they're doing what they enjoy and that they're being super duper productive in the time that they are working. There are a couple of things that I can't do. I can't, that I, that I don't want to teach that I've decided for myself. I do not want to be like a morality compass. I don't want to tell people like, this is what is good and right. I want, like, I, there are certain things that you can't teach or rather I, I just don't want to teach. I don't want to deal with morality. I can teach the skills. I can teach the the tools of the trade. And so if you are a person that is willing to work hard, you know, I mean, the, the whole idea behind morality is like, if somebody at work is clocking hours, like all of us are, are virtual. If somebody is clocking work or hours at work watching Netflix, I would, uh, in theory, not know. I, you know, the, the only way that I would know is to see that somebody's output is pretty dang low and or whatever. But if somebody steals from the company an hour here or there uh, watching Netflix, um, you know, whatever new show is out, I wouldn't know. But what I do is I try to like allow for that. I try to allow for people not to be perfect. As long as the work gets done, I was, you know, I try to tell people like, I don't, I don't mind what you do with your time. As long as the work gets done, it's not about like the specific number of hours that you output. I hope that all of those hours tracked are like good, honest hours, but I'm not going to micromanage. I mean, there are apps that you can set up on people's computers that will monitor their screens and, and how like their active time and take screenshots and other things like that. Yeah, I think their webcam and it will know if they're away from the computer for so long and then you'll get notified. Like, I've, yeah. known pe- I've known people who've worked for companies like that. Yeah, and it was, there's, a, I forget what it's called, like screen doctor or something doctor, anyway, time doctor. And I remember we had, we had one of our employees was down in like maybe about 40 miles away from us and he didn't have a wage that was super duper high. So we let him work from home like three days a week so that he could, uh, you know, take his kids to school and from school and not have this huge drive on top of that. It's just like, he was totally willing to do it, but I just felt like, you know, his, his standard of living would have been so much lower if he had to drive an hour there to work to the office and then an hour back home. And Alex actually, who, who works for us. And um, uh, so we let him work for work from home and I said, Hey, you know, let's install this thing because that's what I was told to do by, by somebody let's install this time doctor thing. And it was like, I don't know, 10 bucks a month. And it would monitor. And like, I just felt like, I I think I looked at it like once because I felt sleazy looking at it. Like if he's not working, I'm going to get him. Like, am I really, you know, and you feel like the FBI. (laughs) Yeah. Why am I even doing this? You know, Um, why don't I just show my employee that I trust you? I'm going to choose to trust you. And you know, work hard for me, do your very best and let's not pay attention to the stupid time doctor thing, you know? And I've never regretted that, like not for a moment. I think that giving people the benefit of the doubt is really important, you know? So anyway, um, yeah, so I, I, I really like that about, about Valve. I think that when you know enough, like one of the things I find is actually really hard for me in, um, as a, a publisher of board games, my, I, I, I know I do not have the skill set of being an artist at all, but given that I've worked with artists for, for several years now, I know generally the relative output that an artist should be at, like the, the amount of time that something should take, the amount of effort, the, the cost of like a card frame, the cost of an illustration. I know generally that that stuff. And so as long as it's within acceptable parameters to me, then no problem. But there's so much I do not know about, like, how do I track 
a game designer developer uh, and their hours? Like, how do I know that they're being productive? It's really hard for me because although I was a game designer developer, you know, for many years on Deliverance and now other games, I find I have my own way of developing and designing and, and I, I find it really hard to be able to judge output of someone in a position like that. So what I try to do is I try to, number one, give them the benefit of the doubt that they are working and they are actively trying with the hours that I've allocated. I have a, you know, a couple of, um, you know, developers on staff at like between five to 20 hours a week for deliverance and for low end games. And they are all working on stuff. And I remember one week we had 20 hours worth of work and nothing actually like fit, no PDF or InDesign file or anything produced, but it was a lot of like talking and theorizing and planning and, and whatever. And my, one of my staffers, um, Adam came to me and said, like, I'm, I'm concerned because I've been doing a lot of work, but it doesn't look like it. It's like, I don't have a lot to show for it. And, you know, he's like, um, you know, I was planning on getting a scenario finished and we spent five hours theory crafting all these scenarios and working on stuff, but nothing actually tangibly was completed. And I told him that it's completely fine to me if that is how you used your time, as long as you're confident that you used your time um, in the best way that you knew how. Because the stuff, as long as it's productive hours, that stuff will come, you know? Like for me, mm -hmm. if I'm designing characters or, or whatever, missions, a lot of the time, the creativity, it's so, it's so challenging to just say, all right, for eight hours a day, you're going to be creative. And then <laughs> after that, you don't need to be, right? It, like you're creative for maybe like 45 minutes of that time. And you're actually thinking and, and processing. And sometimes for me, the information needs to just percolate inside my head for a little bit. And all of a sudden I just lock my, it's like 3 PM. My wife thinks I'm getting off in two hours. And all of a sudden I lock my door and it just starts flowing out of me. Like the work has been finished in my head and all that it needs to happen is like, it needs to come out onto paper or whatever, you know, into the files. And so, you know, two new bosses and 28 new cards and, you know, five missions will be created in a, in a span of like four hours. And I'm begging my wife, hey, please let me just work, you know, 15 more minutes. And then an hour later, she comes back and it's like 15 more minutes, you know, it's a, it's a, a, a strange process. And so, you know, the, I mean, in the end, all I can do is trust those that I've put in charge and treat them as though they, you know, again, with the benefit of the doubt that they want to be here, they want to be productive, they want to do what's good and right and, and all that. And if, if I'm looking at somebody with like a, a critical eye, like, oh, are you wasting your time? Then it's going to kind of kill that motivation and it's going to kill that desire to do their very best. If they're going to try their very hardest and then they're just going to get like trash talked or whatever, you know, or just disparaged. What is the motivation to try your hardest, you know? But I also think it comes down to the incentives that we have at crowdfunding nerds. We, everyone has wages, but there's also bonuses that can, can be achieved. So it sort of motivates everyone to work hard because it's going to impact everyone's wage and everyone's income. So by working hard, by serving our clients, we're really serving our, ourselves. So I think that also is, is key. I think there can be dangers where uh, people are essentially button pressers. They, they've got their job description. They do that. They clock in, they clock out. And But whilst I think the culture we're trying to create, and very much like Valve has created, is this idea where everyone is able to suggest ideas of what we should do next and we can implement those we can discuss them and really our goal is to better serve our clients and better serve uh, the people in this industry mm -hmm. one thing that in this valve handbook they say that uh, over over time is generally a sign of people being un unproductive which is quite interesting they don't look at over like sometimes they do say in the document that sometimes there's times you have to crunch. Like I think when Jacob, before Jacob came on, I had to do some overtime just because Ryan had stepped down and we got yeah. this influx of, of people. So yeah. it was pretty nuts, <laughs> but I, I had to do some overtime there, but they, they're saying that it, it's usually a sign that people are not managing their time. Well, you shouldn't have to work 50 hours a week, mm -hmm. every week. You should, you know, 40 hours or whatever you've, you've set yourself should be enough to get your tasks done. Otherwise you need to delegate or 
implement better systems. So I thought that was really interesting. It's really motivated me or challenged me to really make sure that I'm optimizing my time as much as I can during, during those periods and not, not trying to do things over time because it's not good for your, as they say in the document, not good for your, your life balance and for your family. Mm-hmm. And it's not fair. You're really taking from um, other areas where you need to be active in. Yeah, that's so true. I, you know, um, for myself, I, um, I use, so in college, I have the, the type of brain that I have will, I will hear something and I will retain it for like six weeks. And it just, I don't know why I work like that, but I'm, I'm a very auditory learner and it just, it just sits in, in my head and I kind of think about what was spoken. So in college, I was, you know, in business school, I um, would listen to my teachers and I felt always compelled to write notes, you know, because that's what every other person was doing. They had a laptop open and, or a tablet, or they had, um, you know, just a pen and paper and they were writing notes. And I felt kind of embarrassed that I wasn't writing notes. Like I was, I would sometimes sit in the back of the class so that people wouldn't see, uh, you know, see me. Um, but I just felt like a little embarrassed, but by the time I got to my upper level college courses as a, like a junior or senior in, in college, uh, uh, I kind of embraced it and I would always get asked about like, why don't you, in fact, sometimes the teachers would ask me, why aren't you writing this down? And I, my, my desk, I would have my backpack next to my chair and my desk would be entirely empty. And I would just, I, I would just start to tell people like, I remember things a whole lot better without writing. Because if I write, the only things I remember are the notes themselves. But if I put these away, then I remember the things the teacher is saying. And so I started to embrace that about myself. And there were two classes that I I was so happy to get a C uh, because the things the teachers were teaching were not on the test. It was like, read and then don't listen to what I'm saying, but, but like read this other book that I didn't teach from. And that's how you pass the test, you know? So that's those classes were always really hard for me, but, um, but yeah, I think that part of it is just about kind of embracing how you, how you work and how you learn. And so like for, for me, like the other day, I, I was having a really hard time doing anything. I was like having a hard time being productive. I realized it had been a while since I had eaten. It was like 2 PM, you know, and I haven't eaten lunch yet. And I, you know, I'm like trying to spin my wheels. I feel like I'm going 90 miles an hour, but I'm not making any progress. Like, my, you know, the back of the car, you know, is, is the wheels are off the ground and I'm just hitting, you know, 6,000 RPMs and it's, it's very unproductive. So what I did was I actually stopped working. I went, I grabbed something to eat, came back and I sat for an hour and watched YouTube. It was like totally not, not even stuff I could learn from. I sometimes I'll watch something like League of Legends or other like gaming tournaments because it gives me ideas for deliverance and other games and whatnot. But this was purely for entertainment. I shut my brain off. And then after an hour, it's like an hour lunch break for me is like a very long lunch break. I turned my brain back on and I crushed it for like the next three hours. I did. It was, it was great. I was very productive, but I think part of it is just kind of embracing how it is that you work, how it is that you learn. And then also you know, an environment that will, that will allow for the different ways that people work. I don't know what you guys think about that. No, I agree because I've been in positions with other jobs as well, where it's very, I hate to use the word old, old school, but it is a very formulaic sort of expectation that everyone works the exact same way. And a lot of times it ends up creating conflict within coworkers or within employee boss relations, because there's sort of this mismatched expectation that there's an assumption that you work the exact same way that I work. And if you're not doing things exactly the way that I'm doing it, then you're not working or you're wasting time. I had had a conversation with an employee that had was going through a book and that's what they, uh, the book was on was evaluating even employees through different generations that they had an, an older individual that sat at their desk and worked for eight hours a day and was viewed very highly. And then they were an older individual and then they hired a 20 something 
year old uh, employee and they would work really hard first half of the day. And then it was like, they were on their cell phone at their desk playing games in the afternoon. And like the management initially was like super upset and just made the assumption that this person is not working, but then did a breakdown of the work that was being accomplished. And the 20 year old was doing the same amount of work if not more in the four hours at the beginning of the day than the other individual that was doing working the entire day. It was just a very different approach. Like one of them had an approach of, I really want to knuckle down and get through all of my tasks quickly, and then I can move on to something else. Uh, And the other individual was like, let me ration it out. I like to take everything in small chunks. And so they look productive over a longer span of time, but the volume of work was actually the same. Um, so I do think it is kind of nice when you are able to walk into a space where you can best view what helps you get to that creative space to produce the best quality work, because sometimes it does take that stepping away or disconnecting for a, for a short time to engage your brain to best function at, on a task that's at hand. And not everyone is that way. I know some people definitely prefer to like kind of grind it out. Like they are kind of like this slow and steady little engine that could and kind of just keep going a little bit at a time. And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I think it's important to to note that you can still be productive and efficient, even if your routine is not exactly the same as, as another individual. Um, we'd even had as an educator, when I was going through schooling, they were talking to us about instructing boys not to discipline our our male students for like clicking their pens and tapping their feet while you were teaching because some of the studies had showed that a lot of a lot of male students in traditional like public setting school settings like their their brains are not wired to sit and just be talked to for hours and hours on end and they almost require a physical stimulus like an output to engage um, their brain to receive the the instruction that is that's coming in and so they're like a lot of times like they may be clicking their pen or tapping their feet and it's not because they're bored or they're not trying to to listen but they are they require a physical stimulus to like help keep their their brain engaged and i know i'm kind of that way too i have a i'm technically doing it right now i've got a cycle underneath my desk and uh, I will occasionally <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, uh, I occasionally will like sit and like pedal, and it's just something to do to like keep my like body engaged awesome. so that I can stay focused on <laughs> the task that's going on and stuff like that. So that's because otherwise, cool. like, I, I'm I'm really bad. Like, if people call me on the phone, that's how I would like if I needed to make sure I logged like twelve thousand steps in a day. Uh, I probably should just tell people to call me on the phone because I think it's impossible for me to to talk on the phone and sit down. That's hilarious. You know, I, I will also say like kind of as a counterpoint, and I know we're, we're kind of approaching the end of, uh, of our podcast time here, but uh, I'll say when I, uh, the, the environment that I place myself in when it's time for me to work has been uh, something that in the past I had struggled quite a lot with because I you know, as a digital marketer, I work, you know, on the computer and on the internet and everything like that. And for many, many years, I was like a super hardcore gamer and I would game at that station, like at that workstation, you know, and it would be like a really souped up, awesome workstation with like a really nice, uh, you know, graphics card and a, uh, you know, high level processor and, and everything like that. And I would, you know, it, I, it would be super fun. I could have you know, 30 Photoshop files open and I would have no problem. But um, it it became difficult for me to remain focused when I knew what I needed to do. And it was like, all right, I, I, it's time for me to get working on, you know, I don't know, deliverance, for example. I, I have this thing that's that needs to come out and I'll start doing that stuff. But then it's like, you know, the, the concept of work for me, when it feels like work, I... Um, I have this natural resistance to, to it that I have to overcome. And when I'm sitting in my gaming chair at my gaming station, the, the, the way that my mind resists, I have a mentor, uh, which we actually interviewed 
um, on our podcast uh, named Dan Bo. We did a two-part interview with Dan. Maybe we'll link that in the show notes. But um, it was called Beating the Demons. And he wrote a book called Beating the Demons. And the demons are the forces in your mind that will that try to stop you from doing what will make you successful, uh, which is hilarious because I'm doing a game about angels and demons at the time, right? <laughs> and like, like you know, literal demons. And uh, so I, I had this, I always had this, um, you know, temptation that was so strong that uh, was really difficult to overcome sometimes. Actually, I remember my wife would leave for work I, and and I'm supposed to make cold calls and try to sell websites and do website work and stuff. I remember playing Elder Scrolls Oblivion for like eight hours straight and then hearing her coming up the steps, you know, back uh, to come inside. And, and to my embarrassment, I shut that game down as quick as I could and I made it look like I was working, you know, with a different tab and whatever and it was it was like such a difficult thing for me to to overcome sometimes especially when you know i would make a cold call somebody would hurt my feelings and i would just put my hoodie on and play um like green day or hello darkness my old friend by simon and garfunkel and and just like game it up because that made me feel better and i found that it was really really difficult for me to to get over that until i changed my environment so um i moved to a new house I, you know, uh, you know, we moved from our little apartment into like my in-laws farmhouse, you know, in the middle of an avocado farm, uh, which was really awkward for being a digital marketer. And I all of a sudden felt like my place that I am is a place for work now. And it was a lot easier, less temptation. It was like all the habits that I had developed, it was way easier to like kind of overcome. And so, you know, one encouragement, if, if that's you, or, you know, if you're working with people that typically, you know, their gaming chair is their office chair, it, it might help to find, to actually relocate, you know, your, your workspace or whatever, because that really helped me. Interesting. Maybe before we wrap up, I just want to quickly cover going back to Valve. They have four criteria in which they sort of use to value uh, employee output and they call it the stack ranking. And there's four layers. The first layer is skill level and technical ability. So how deep does someone's technical ability go? How good are they at just kind of doing the thing, have the knowledge? Then the second one is productivity output. What value generating tasks are they completing? How many are they able to, to do? Then the third one is group contribution. So how well are they working as a team and, and contributing in, in those group spaces? The final one is product contribution. And I think this is in terms of uh, direct involvement in products that have eventually shipped. So, you know, cause you can work on tasks, which are internally, you know, as we've discussed, don't really bear much fruit, but you are working, but then what involvement are you having in products that are actually being shipped and are, and are being produced? So those are the four criteria. I think those are just important for everyone to keep in mind. Can you improve on those four areas? If you do, you'll probably see an improvement in your business overall and your relationships with your colleagues. So I think that's probably a good place just to finish up on just those kind of four criteria is a good place for people to um, reflect and see if they can improve in those areas. Yeah, I love it. Um, so I guess before we get into a uh, whole part two, let's have Robot Richard send us out. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy.